Have you ever found yourself wondering about how artificial intelligence and faith intersect? My name is Elias Kruger. Here we talked about how emerging technologies can align with the flourishing of all of life. Welcome, everyone. Our next episode, we're going to talk about something fun, actually. We're, we're going to talk about a, a new science fiction book that just came out by Brian Sigmund. He uh, is a member of our advisory board and has been writing now for a while and, and finally came out with this uh, science fiction debut. We're very excited uh, about this book. So we want to actually spend some time talking about the book and then diving in a little bit into AI theology as, as it comes up. But I'm very excited to record this. I actually read the book. It was a page turner, honestly. It, it, I think I read it in, in the space of five to seven days. And last weekend, I think my kids didn't know where I was for a while because I was uh, reading the book. So it got me in trouble here in the house, but, but eventually everything was okay. But definitely, I'm a big fan, definitely recommend it. But you know, I, I just love the conversations that this can bring up. So Brian, let's, why don't we, we start? Can you maybe tell us a little bit about yourself? You know, I'm just very curious, how does a PhD in biblical studies end up writing, you know, a science fiction book? Yeah, thank you. That is a great question. First of all, I'd just like to say thank you for having me on the podcast and giving me a chance to talk about the book. It's something that, as you said, I've been working on for some time now. I started it uh, in the fall of 2020, so about two years ago now, and it just has something I've, I've worked on for a while and I'm, I'm very excited about it. I, I just had so much fun telling this story and I'm really having fun sharing it with people. So uh, a little bit about myself, theology and science have both been really foundational for me for as long as I can remember. Uh, I loved sci-fi as a kid uh, ever since I saw Star Wars for the first time in fifth grade. And then I discovered that lots of people had written all these books in this incredible extended universe, kind of carrying the Star Wars world and story further. And I just devoured every single one of those that I could. And so that was with me for, as a child. As I got older and went into high school, I really uh, thought I would go to college and major in physics. And I just really loved that. And then when I actually got to college, I discovered this deep love for, for the Bible and for this academic reading of the Bible. So I changed my major to that and, and went on and, and did a master's and then a PhD in biblical studies. And But that, that love for science, that passion for science fiction never went away. It was just a hobby. I read a lot. I thought about a lot. I don't really know what made me decide to write the story down other than I had sort of had this story in my head for a long time, uh, way back from when I was a high schooler, I had this, this world in my head. And I just remember thinking, oh, it's a shame that's never going to turn into anything. That would be a cool story. Maybe it was the pandemic when everybody is rethinking everything. But I was like, well, why can't I write this down? You know, I, I, I might as well try and see what happens. And so I did. Through my work in biblical studies and as a nonfiction book editor, I had encountered some really great writing from Joseph Campbell and a lot of people who applied Joseph Campbell's idea of the hero's journey to literature. So I felt like I had a pretty good handle on story structure and the kind of building blocks that make up a good story. And so I was able to really put that, that I think that's what gave me the confidence Mm. to to say, okay, I can I can write a good story because I know the essential building blocks that are going to be in a good story. Yeah, that's fantastic. It, it feels like uh, we share one more thing in common is that I guess it sounds like we both went to college thinking we're going to major in physics. In my case, I just realized I wasn't smart enough to really do well in physics in college. 
and I flipped it to political science very quickly. Uh, but uh, you know, that's that's great that that you had that interest from uh, early on. I, I think you talked a little bit about this, but I wanted to maybe dig in a little bit on your, your the process of your writing. So I know that you know you have a full time job, uh, have a growing family, and even in the pandemic, right uh, when you're dealing with additional stresses on top of that, you know, how, how, how did you find time? And you know, how, how did you structure that writing process? I, I'm curious as a writer myself and trying to, you know, write, write myself different things, but tell us more about that. Yeah. Um, that, that's a great question. I knew from the very beginning that slow and steady was going to be the way to go. So mm-hmm. I created a spreadsheet for myself where I would chart the time I started writing in a, on a given day and the time I finished writing. And then it would tell me how long I wrote. It was just a very simple spreadsheet. And then the same thing in another couple columns beside it, I would put my starting word count and then my ending word count. So it would tell me how many words I wrote. What I found very quickly is that the word count was important to kind of track my progress. Right. But I had to set goals based on writing time. So mm-hmm. my goal um, was write for an hour every day. And it was, it was amazing. You know, I was no longer commuting to work. So all of a sudden had that time. Right. And, um, and then, you know, my wife and I would, we would put the kids to bed and we would have some time in the evenings to, to ourselves. And sometimes my writing time would be during that. But my goal was to find a time, find an hour a day to write. It didn't matter if I got 20 words during that hour. And sometimes mm-hmm. I only got 20 words and then I was went back and deleted them later. Or if maybe I, I really hit a roll and got like a thousand or 1500 words, even if I only got 20 words, it was progress. For me, that was what was what needed to happen was I needed to spend that time every day. What I found is that often I would get so into the story that I would write for longer than an hour. I would write for an hour before dinner and then I would come upstairs. We'd put the kids to bed and I, I couldn't wait to open my laptop again and, and write until like late into the night. That was not too often, but sometimes I would do that. So that was really my process. There's a trap you can fall into as a writer, I think. Mm. that and it, it may be more true for fiction writers you can do a lot of things that feel like writing without actually making any progress on your story and I, I knew very early on I needed to invo- avoid that trap I wanted to so I only counted things that were actually putting words on the page mm. That was really critical during a few key times. At, at the beginning, when I didn't have anything, I, I had to have something. Um, and so just getting those words on the page. And then um, I suspect every writer feels this way, but I got about halfway through and I was like, this story is terrible. You know, I, I felt <laughs> like this book is bad. And, and I had to tell myself, a finished bad book is better than an unfinished bad book. No. And so, so, so I said, okay, just keep your butt in the chair and work on it. And then, and then I went back to it later and I was like, actually, this is not that bad. I really mm-hmm. like it. And then I mm-hmm. then I'm did my second draft and another pass. And now I'm really happy with the story. I'm, I'm thrilled with it. But there was that self-doubt where I was like, man, this is bad. I have to just let it go. And I was like, no, you have to finish. Um, so there's that, there's a little bit of persistence and determination that's, so- it's crucial. Real quick, for, for aspiring writers here, do you still have the spreadsheet? And how, how many hours did it take you to, to actually? Oh my gosh! You know, I do still have the spreadsheet. I don't. I can't really have. I don't really have an accurate count of the hours because I used it a lot more in the beginning, mm. and then and then I really stopped tracking. I stopped tracking it about halfway through because I found that I was so invested in the story, and I had built the habit that I was doing it on my own without tracking yeah. it. 
Gosh, I, I wish I knew how many how many hours it was. No, it's um, fine. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I was just curious. <laughs> I, I can say this: the finished story is about one hundred and fifty thousand words. Oh wow! I probably wrote twice that all right. told because you have to edit right and and take stuff out. Wow! So, exactly. so, so you probably wrote three hundred thousand words. And, I, I and, think so. Uh, and you know, I I hope the best one hundred fifty thousand are are what showed up in the book. <laughs> I hope. But, uh, that's great. But, uh, so yeah, so let's let's uh, maybe start getting more into the story of Archimedes without saying too much. Uh, but you know, what I'm always curious when I read a book is, you know, characters are so so key, right? And where did you draw your inspiration for for the characters? You know, as, uh, you know, I was wondering, Ben is the main character. Is, is he Brian or is he somebody else or complete different person? Yeah. Yeah, that another great question. Um, yeah, I think I think Ben is Brian, or at least a part of Brian, you know. Um, so I, you know, I think I put myself into every character a little bit, at least every character that's got any sort of development. They all I mean, it's all coming from my head. It's all my imagination. So right. even characters that I'm like, not this person, it's sort of a negative projection. Right. But I think Ben, the main character, probably is the most has the most uh, in common with me. His life, he's a 23 year old and his his life has been infinitely more interesting than mine has been uh as you'll see in the book so in that in that respect there's not a lot of correspondence but i think you know what drives ben this um ben's got a love for his family and his friends he's got this element of loyalty that is really really strong Mm -hmm. uh i think that that very much is um expresses a a big piece of me I've, i've got a very strong tie to my family and my friends he's also uh he's got this fear of failure, I think, that maybe causes him to hold back a little bit, mm-hmm. causes him to kind of hedge his bets and not take risk. And I think that's something that I've tried to do better about in my life. Right. And, and you know, his, his journey is he's he's learning to take risk. He's learning to, to step up to the plate. And that's something right. that I feel like I've had to learn and am continuing to learn through my life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the other thing, and I, I think this is true of all of us, not just not just myself, but an important part of Ben's journey is he's got this, um, what we might call a superpower. It's a unique gift that he's learning to figure out. He's learning about what that is. He's learning that it's got both danger and um, benefits and he's learning to navigate those in, in a way that lets him access the benefits and manage the danger. And I think that's true for all of us. You know, we've all got gifts we've all got unique things that make us who we are things that we have to offer the world and those things can be both beneficial and detrimental to us and the people around us and it's and so just a lot of life a lot of growing up is learning how to how to navigate that Mm. um i guess i'll say one more thing about inspiration for characters i i love um I love villains in in movies and uh, and in stories, and and I love the way some villains talk. So so one of my key villains, his name is Asher Garrison. He's um, uh-huh. I call him a raptor in the book. It's a it's a fancy name I made up for a basically a space pirate. Um, I can hear his voice in my head. I love the way his cadence speaks, and that's drawn from fun villains that I've seen in other books. One of my favorite villains is Boyd Crowder in the in the TV series Justified. Mm. He's just got this really cool way of speaking, very eloquent and a little bit funny and very relaxed and kind of nonchalant, and I really tried to channel that voice in Asher Garrison, the way he talks. Anyway, that was that was another important inspiration that I wanted to 
yeah be sure to mention i can kind of tell it reading his his voice that there was something very peculiar about the way he spoke and 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 it was villains can can also be very um if you don't do it right they can be the cheesy or or too mean like they're not even approachable right so finding that striking that balance is always a challenge where you know you know that they're not good but they could be you in some ways right so so, so there's some connection there Well, I'd love to talk more about it, but I, you know, this isn't an AI theology podcast, so we need to kind of uh, hone in a little more on uh, AI. So I, I thought it was interesting that AI plays quite a prominent role, I would say, in, in Archimedes' world. Uh, so, so maybe can you tell us a little bit more, maybe introduce us a little bit into Archimedes' world and AI's role in it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, as, as you and I were talking about putting this podcast together, I kind of made a list of, of the ways it shows up. And some of that is is has been intentional, and some of it has been unintentional, but but really a creative process. There's a there's a cute a few key things about the world. One of them is this um, this device that all the characters have called a gem, mm-hmm. and it's um, it's like a souped up smartphone right. um, that allows them to access information about their world and also interact with their world so they could use it to uh, to link up with their spaceship that they're that they're flying in another aspect of it is um, it's it's got a component that's actually directly wired into your brain it's called a, a link or an implant and that's really important for the main character because his implant in his brain is constructed in a way that helps him manage this dangerous power that he's got. It kind of keeps it at bay. And he's able to control that with his gym. And as I was thinking about that, what I imagined is that you could interface with this implant sort of directly through your brain. But I envisioned that humans aren't wired evolutionarily, maybe is the word. Uh Through evolution, we are not wired in such a way that we can necessarily do that efficiently and effectively without being overwhelmed. So I sort of posited that humans are going to need this sort of external manual manipulation to interface with this thing because that's how we're used to interacting with our world. Mm -hmm. So instead of me just thinking, I want my link to do this, I would input that with, with my gym. So that's one way it shows up. I definitely thought of like the, the Neuralink project that Elon Musk is doing. That was definitely an inspiration for this. Of course, our smartphones were, was an, was an inspiration for this too. Another really interesting uh, bit of tech that I envision is a what I call in the book a Dyson array. So mm-hmm. very uh, any fans of sci-fi are going to know what a Dyson sphere is. It's a way of a big engineering project that surrounds a sun and is and harvests the energy from the sun. I sort of said that um, I don't think humans are going to just decide we're going to build us build ourselves a Dyson sphere and then go out and do that. It's going to happen much more piecemeal than that. It's going to happen in fits and starts, and we're not all going to be unified. We're going to have pieces of that. And so I said, okay, what is that going to look like? Um, I'm going to call it a Dyson array that basically individual entities within humanity, a, a planet or a colony or a or a country they're going to set up their own version of this mm-hmm. and that's going to allow them to collect energy from the sun, beam it through space where it needs to go and then receive it. And so that whole apparatus of collecting, beaming, receiving, that's called a Dyson array. A really important piece of that where AI plays a role is in real time monitoring of those beaming signals because mm-hmm. it's such a powerful beam of energy that if it's off even by a little bit, it can destroy, it can be very destructive. And so there's AI monitoring that and making real time corrections. Now to do that, you've got to have 
instantaneous communication, right? So, so um, you can't have this time lag. Otherwise, it's not going to be useful. You know, inventing things for sci-fi is just so much fun. I imagined a, a quantum entanglement line or QEL, and my characters call the Quill for short. That um, basically waves a magic wand of quantum entangled particles and says you can uh, communicate over distance now. So we don't have to deal with time lags or talking through space. That's actually an important piece of the of the world because it allows this real-time monitoring and correction of these incredible energy beams. Another thing that's probably got a little bit more of a real world connection, there's a, a lot of use of robots for repair, for um, mining things, for loading, things like that. It's just, just a part of the world. There's a requirement or at least a custom that that every bot that has this major function has to have a, an opportunity for human input. Mm. So the, the idea is that bots sort of operate on their own, but if something fails, there's a way for a human to get in there and, and manually control it. Right. Those are, those are sort of built in by requirement and or by custom. So there's always humans. Uh, there's an opportunity for humans in the loop with this. And and then, you know, in my story, my main my characters are able to leverage that to do some right. of the things they want to do. But but that made sense as a as a part of a plausible future world where humans and AIs are coexisting in a way that benefits humanity. Yeah, I noticed that AI was showing up in different areas and I thought, that that part could could be kind of a lesson or insight, right? I think there's a lot of discussion right now about AI being not enough monitored. There's a lot of effort to on explainability on the legal side, AI, you know, making decisions that are not best for us. And there's always the the legal side of you know whose fault is it if uh, let's say autonomous car uh, hits a pedestrian, whose fault is it? Uh, we in that case right now we still have kind of the the driver who can control it. The, the recent event that happened in Arizona, the, the driver is actually still in trouble. I think even though the AI you know kind of hit somebody, uh, that person who was behind the wheel was apparently still a legal problem. We can get more background on that. But I think it's very interesting that in that world, right, there was a recognition that we needed to keep humans in the loop. That became embedded, you know, in your world. So, so tell us a little bit more about specifically that bot, right, that, that I think it's in a research center. And but there was, I guess, a, a spot for a human. What, what, tell us more about that specific piece of, of, of uh, tech. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's funny. I'll but before I get into that, I want to say you know as I was as I was imagining this world, some early drafts of my novel, I had a whole backstory where humans had sort of gone too far with with technology or, or, or with with AI and mm-hmm. and had a bad experience. And so they said we've got to put regulations in place to really curb and regulate the relationship between humans and AIs. And I had. I kind of thought of this backstory. I hadn't really written it down in, in any detailed way, but I, in early drafts, I had some allusions to this where there had been uh, not quite an AI apocalypse, but may, maybe two or three steps short of that. And humans had said, well, we've got to, we've got to really regulate this. So that concern was definitely built in into the book. So the way it shows up in the book itself is that at a critical point in the story, my main character, Ben, and his companions have to break into a research center to stop the bad guys from doing what they're trying to do. Right. And, the, and their way in is there's a there's a monorail leading in and out of this thing. And so they basically break a piece of the monorail. They they sabotage a little bit and they get a repair bot to come out on the monorail line. The idea is that the bots can't accomplish quite everything. And even if they could, there would still need to be a way for a human to, to accomplish this work because right. 
uh, you know, AIs are vulnerable. They can be hacked. They can be compromised. So there was a there was a compartment in this monorail car for a human to get inside and be able to drive it. Not just drive it, but so that the monorail could actually transport a human to the site that needed repair and have the person get out and actually do the work. And so that's what my my characters are able to, to create a sabotage so that they so that the bot can come out and then they stop the bot and they get inside and they ride it back in. And my main character uses his superpower to kind of cover up their tracks a little bit. But that's what they use to get inside the research center and do what they need to do. Yeah, no, I find that great. So so you have a backstory of you know AI regulation. And suddenly that becomes the loophole upon which your plot progresses. I, I mean, again, as a writer, I thought that was fantastic. As a writer who's interested in AI and technology, that was, was a great, uh, it's something that st- stick in my mind while reading the book. Uh, it, was, it was a real, it was an interesting thing for me because uh, I was like, oh, it would be great to have a heist right here. And I got so excited and I was like, dang, now I have to plan a heist. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, as the architect of the world, maybe it was a little easier uh, to plan a heist in a world that I created than it would be in the real world. I don't know. Oh, man. Yes. I, I wish we could talk more, but we don't want to spoil too much. Definitely go get the book if you want to understand this better. So this is, this is great. And, um, you know, now that as we move into AI, uh, you know, obviously you mentioned that you, you have a degree in, in biblical studies, uh, PhD, and been involved in ministry and Christian publishing as well. I would not call this a Christian book by any sort of measure. There is no, uh, quote unquote, proselytizing or even, <laughs> I don't know, a Christ figure that we could say. Oh, maybe there is, maybe there is. But, but there's definitely a spiritual side to it. Right. So can you tell us a little bit about that? How did you, you know, how did you draw inspiration for that? And and how did you weave that into the story? Yeah, it was it was very much a conscious decision not to make this an overtly religious book. I I think if you asked Ben, the main character, what his religious beliefs were, he would either say he's an atheist or he would say he hadn't given it much thought, something like that. Um, You know, that said, you know, that said, it's definitely in there because that's that's a big part of who I am. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we we can't help. but I mean, I show up on every page because I'm the writer of the story. And so it's definitely there. But it was it was a conscious decision on my part to say, I'm just going to write a sci fi story. And that my main goal is going to be tell a fun story and not try to do any sort of any sort of morals, any sort of spiritual, in part because that's such an important thing for me that I think if I had set out to do that from the beginning, it would have felt too big, too daunting, and I never would have written a word. I think I had to tell myself, all you're doing is telling a fun story. And that gave me enough detachment, confidence. Um <laughs> To say to, to actually get started. But as you said, there are spiritual themes in there. Um, was kind of thinking about this the other day. There there are elements of of loyalty and being true to yourself and being true to your friends and 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 doing the right thing and an aspect of duty that, that comes up. But there's also uh I'm gonna try to say this without giving too much away. Sure. But um a good part of the second half of the book, uh water is an important symbol mm. and I think we can we can definitely read some elements of baptism in that. Now, I don't use the word baptism at all in the story, but every time I watch a movie with my wife, I'll and anytime water shows up at a critical point, I'll nudge her and I'll say, Amy, that's baptism. And she'll roll her eyes so hard at me, but I stand by it every single time. My main character has grown up on a on a colony that's that's basically a 
two cylinders joined together and it orbits Saturn's moon Titan. Mm -hmm. That's his world. That's what he knows. And he has never seen rain before. Water is something he drinks. Water is part of life, but he's, but it just, it doesn't rain. And he knows rain exists because of books he's read, but he's never experienced it before. And there's a really pivotal moment in the book where he experiences rain for the first time. And then he sees the ocean for the first time and he sees the Mississippi river. And it's so much bigger than he thought rivers should be. Um, and then there's, there's another moment where he's got another realization in the middle of a thunderstorm. And there's definitely a spiritual piece there where he's realizing, he realizes that Water expresses connection between everything. He sees that the rain falling from the sky makes its way across the ground into a river and makes its way to the ocean, and then it evaporates as rain. And there's this yeah. ongoing connection with all of things. And that becomes uh, an important metaphor for him that helps him uh, understand his this power that he's got and helps him right. uh, really learn to harness it. Um, I think... Hopefully that didn't give too much away, but, but for me, that was a very spiritual thing. And I think it's no coincidence that as someone with a background in theology that I used water to kind of express that because baptism and water are right. so, uh, such powerful images in the Christian faith and, and, and really for all of humans. I mean, water is such an important right. piece of life. Again, too bad that we can't discuss it more. Maybe, maybe we'll have a book club where we can then talk about oh, it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and that would be, be awesome but um, this will be the first and probably not the last shameless plug to all listeners to go buy the book so we can right. know what uh <laughs> so you can know what this powerful scene is yes so no this is great now i i love how you said you know i wasn't setting out to to write a, a moral book a christian book or a religious book or even a book about ai or anything but a fun book right but you know now that it is complete, what is what do you hope readers take away from this book? First of all, I hope someone reads this book and they get to the end and they think, man, that was a heck of a ride. That that's that that's 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 my number one goal in telling this story is I want it to be a book that people enjoy, a story that people um, want to keep reading. I do plan a sequel, so I hope people get to the end and think I want to read more about these characters in this <laughs> world. But beyond that, I hope people take away that risk is an important part of life and that um, and that you can't totally do away with risk um, and that that courage and loyalty are, are what help you take the right risk and deal with the right risk. So I hope people get to the end of the story and they see themes about about courage and loyalty to those, to your loved ones, to your friends and your family, that those bigger, meaningful things of life are what kind of call you forward out of yourself to say, I'm, I'm going to take a risk and grow uh, as a result of this. And, and then I'll say another important theme that really uh, that I can't get over in the book is the importance of persistence and determination. I think that shows up in the book. I had someone ask me once, what is the soul of your work in progress? And, and they were talking about how hard it was to find the soul of their book. And I thought, I can tell you the paragraph that's the soul of my book. And I won't tell you what that is, but it's it's this um, it's this wonderful scene. It's very close to the end. And it's got this mixture of this, this kind of larger than life encounter with death and, and just the right amount, I think, of grit that, that lets the main character say, no, I'm going to I'm going to get past this. And so I think that um, emphasis on on risk and grit and determination 
are, are really important themes too. I probably said way too much about that. I just hope you like the story. Um, that was, like I said, that's goal number one. Um, I hope that's a fun ride for everybody. Yes, absolutely. I, I certainly felt that way uh, on the on the right side, but no, absolutely. And we'll, we'll provide obviously some links onto kind of where, where, where you can get that, but this is exciting, Brian. Uh, I'm glad to hear that, that there's going to be a sequel. I, I'm still rooting for Ben that things go well for him, uh, you know, after the fact and, and his friends. Uh, but that's exciting. And, and, and I love it how you have a fun story, but still also talk about meaning and AI and spirituality. And I think that's how things need to be, right? We don't have to separate things. Uh, things can be fun, but also meaningful, you know, fun, but also teach us uh, something important. So uh, I, I really like how, how that book opens those things up. So, yeah, I think uh, I, I don't really have any additional questions. I don't know if you have uh, anything else you want to share about the book or, uh, you know, that you haven't mentioned. Nothing else about the book. I hope uh, I hope listeners choose to go check it out. And if they if they decide they want to read it, I hope they really enjoy it. I will say, you know, I never thought of myself as a fiction writer. So if, if anybody's out there listening and thinking, um, man, I want to try writing, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, I say, like, do it. Have all confidence. Tell yourself whatever story you need to tell yourself to get that writing done, if that's what you want to do or, or anything. Um, because I, 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 I hear this all the time and it's a cliche, but it's also true. Is like, if I can do it, anybody can do it. So right. I just want to encourage you to, to go out and do, do whatever big thing you want to do um, because... Uh, because it's absolutely worthwhile. Absolutely. It's fine. There's that inspiring part, even for myself, is that I, I, I want to, I think I have maybe three or four books that I kept on starting, but never, never going anywhere. So now I'm inspired to maybe finish one of those. So, but no, thank you, Brian. Uh, it's great talking to you. And uh, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure we'll be talking more uh, about this or other things, but thanks again. And thanks uh, for having me. Um, again, I just, uh, Let's say goodbye to everybody. This is, uh, you know, our podcast about Archimedes. Go check it out. Um, it's on Amazon and all the other platforms. And uh, yeah, until next time, have a great week. Goodbye. Thank you so much for, for the invitation to be a part of this. I really look forward to uh, continuing to follow the AI Theology Podcast. <laughs>